Hey everybody, it's JT. What is on your holiday meal shopping list? Well, I would suggest Painted Hills Natural Beef. It is some of the best beef in the world. And your friends and family will be thanking you for a long time if you serve Painted Hills Natural Beef for your holiday meals. And now you can buy it online just by going to PaintedHillsBeef.com. Use the code BBQNATION at checkout and save yourself 15% on your order. Give Painted Hills Natural Beef a place on your table this holiday season. It's time for Barbecue Nation with JT. So fire up your grill, light the charcoal, and get your smoker cooking. Now, from the Turn It, Don't Burn It studios in Portland, here's JT. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the nation. That's the Barbecue Nation. I'm JT, along with Camaro Dave, Commander Chris, and coming to you from our Turn It, Don't Burn It studios here in Portland, Oregon. By the way, Commander, our Camaro Dave had a little boo-boo on his car last night, so I know he's still um, moping about that this morning, but uh, <laughs> it'll be all right, Dave. Trust me. It's just a scratch. Um, we're very fortunate we've got Robert Moss with us today, the author of uh, Barbecue History and American Institution. And it's a revised edition, and he's got more stuff in it. So we're going to be talking to Robert in just a second here. We'd like to thank the folks at Painted Hills Natural Beef, beef the way nature intended. You can check them out online at PaintedHillsNaturalBeef.com. So um, first of all, Robert, welcome back to the show. I'm really pleased. Thanks so much. I'm really pleased that you're here. Um, This book, as I told you off the air before we started the interview, I think anybody who um, considers themselves a barbecue aficionado and I don't care what style they cook or if they're competitive or they just like doing it in the backyard. I think they should read your book. Um, there's so much history in it, fascinating history, and about how, you know, barbecue got here, uh, how it started, how it was really finally kind of sewn into the fabric of America. Um, first question right off the bat, what possessed you to write this book, the original and then the revised edition, and then how long did it take you? Yeah. Well, the original one, I always say I wrote the book because I went to the library one day to check out a book on the history of barbecue. And there there wasn't one, as it turned out. No one had written one. And this was back in the you know, just early 2000s. And sure. uh, at that time, there just wasn't much written about the history of barbecue, certainly nothing much before the 20th century. A lot of people had written about some of the you know, history of restaurants and things. And so I just started digging into it, just to try to see. And the more I dug into it, the more I turned up. And then next thing I know, I said, well, I guess I'm going to have to write that book. <laughs> so I did, <laughs> did all that. And uh, it took a number of years. I probably worked on it you know, in earnest for five or six years uh, doing the research and another year or two to write it. So uh, the original book came out in 2010, um, in the fall of 2010, so almost exactly 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think I, I probably had finished writing and submitted to the press in late 2009 because it takes, you know, almost sure. a year to go through the whole whole process. So right. it, it truly had been 10 years. Uh, that's why I wrote the, the first one. And um, you would have thought that history wouldn't have changed that much <laughs> in, in 10 years. But uh, it did. And not only um, you know, two, two big things. One is that um, after our, the book first came out, a lot more people started writing about barbecue and digging into the history. And there have been uh, a number of really, really great books that have come out since then. And a lot of other folks who are writing for magazines and newspapers about right. the history of barbecue. And I've been doing a lot more research myself. Um, I'm the contributing barbecue editor for Southern Living. So I've been spending last you know six or seven years you know continuing to research and travel around to eat so there's a lot more information we turned up 
And then just so much has changed in the last 10 years as well. The barbecue world is very, very different today than it was when the first edition of the book was published. So I had, you know, about two years ago said, you know, I think I need it's time to do a revised and expanded edition. And fortunately, the University of Alabama Press was on board for that. So, uh, you know, I did the updated version and it just came out uh, actually just a couple of weeks ago. No, it's terrific. It's terrific. And the images you've got in there, um, you know, if you didn't, if it didn't, if you looked at them out of context, it would just be like, okay, there's a bunch of people standing around and it looks like <laughs> they're, you know, got something on a skewer over a pit. But, uh, you know, it's putting, putting them in context is, is really cool. Okay. So uh, I got to ask you, and you've got stories about a lot of characters in this book. Uh, historical figures when it comes to barbecue. But I think the guy that struck me the most was John Calloway, who is a mm -hmm. sheriff down in Georgia. Big boy. He's a big boy. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, he's something over three, six feet and 300 pounds or so the last time that uh, they, they, they could weigh him. So he was definitely <laughs> a large man. <laughs> they take him down to the stuckyards to weigh him or what? I think they had to, yeah. <laughs> it got to some point, according to the newspaper stories, that he refused to be weighed anymore. <laughs> He just didn't want to know, I guess. But yeah, he was a very large man. Well, he and he was kind of the one that uh, I don't know if I would say this, but uh, correctly, but he kind of Americanized, if you will, or um, more of the Anglo Anglo Saxon Protestantized, if that's a word. Yeah, uh, um, definitely barbecue. Um, definitely did that. I, I would say he was the first celebrity pitmaster. You know, long, long before you know Aaron Franklin was was even born. Sure, um, he was he was the first um, barbecue person, or the big the, the first person to really get picked up in the press, and in particular in the northern press, where all the you know uh, commercial magazines were, were based out of New York, and uh, a lot of them came down to Georgia for various different events and discovered barbecue, which to a bunch of New York writers was a strange thing and they found uh sheriff john calloway who was sort of a larger than life literally picture but yep. in size but also in personality and uh he, he sort of wowed all the uh the, the the yankee writers who went back north and wrote about him and he became very famous across the nation as, as this barbecue cook and of course you know he was the sheriff of uh, wilkes county georgia so obviously a, a white man and he had a, a large crew of uh, african-american men doing doing all the cooking but he was the one of course who got uh his name and, and picture in the newspapers well and they had probably never seen a spread like that you know a hog absolutely not a yeah, hog split and all that yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're just amazed by it. And it's actually really valuable because, from a historical perspective because um, a lot of the writing that Southern reporters would do about barbecue, they didn't even mention the pits and the animals because everybody knew what a barbecue was like. Sure. They would transcribe all the speeches that were made yeah. <laughs> at the barbecue, which are terribly dull and boring. Um, but they, they, they barely would say a thing about you know how it's cooked and how it's eaten. And, you know, these these northern writers, though, is brand new. So they they give all kinds of great detail describing the pits and the cooking and how you eat it and the food. And so it's really some of the best sources we have, you know, toward what uh, of understanding what, what an outdoor barbecue was like back in the you know, late 19th century. Well, I'm sure. And when they walked in and maybe there was, <clears throat> you know, pick a number, it doesn't matter, two or three hundred people or 50 people. Yeah. And and, and the, the smell and the tables and people bustling around and guys mopping sauce on these um, carcasses, you know, and doing all that. It had to blow their minds. 
Oh, yeah. And, it, it, and you said hundreds. That's the key. This, these were not little events. Hundreds would be a small one. Like yeah. A lot of these events had thousands of people. And we aren't talking about one pig or two pigs on a, on a pit. We're talking about these just, you know, pits that just stretch, you know, yard yeah. after yard after yard. Right. Dozens upon dozens of all animals, not just pigs. And, you know, just even in Georgia or wherever you were, there'd be cows, there'd be sheep, there'd be goats, there'd be whatever, you know, the farmers nearby had on hand. So it was a very impressive and very novel thing to someone who'd never been to a Southern barbecue before. I noticed that in your writing, and you mentioned this more than once, that when they, back in those days, this is, you know, post-Civil War uh, by 20 years and it's, and it's, you know, going and, and everything's happening, but they were still barbecuing a lot of sheep, a lot of lamb Mm -hmm. and stuff in those days. And of course we've kind of moved away from that. Um, in the quote unquote professional barbecue circles, if you will, you know, and they, and of course we focus now on, on pork and chicken and, um, and beef, uh, for the most part. But, uh, do some of the original places down South, do they still, uh, offer lamb or sheep? Actually. Yeah. It's actually very rare. Um, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, um, it wasn't that long ago, maybe 50, 60 years ago, that you, you would still find a lot of lamb and a, and a lot of sheep um, you know, at barbecues. But that's all just sort of faded out around the middle of the 20th century. And it's very rare to find it today. Um, if you go up around Owensburg, Owensboro, Kentucky, um, mutton barbecue there is a tradition. Uh, and it's really only a few counties up in that, that area that, that really do lamb uh, you know, up in that sort of north northwestern part of, of kentucky sure um you can still find a few places in texas that will do lamb ribs and, and various cuts of lamb in fact you'll still see mutton on the um menus in texas but uh, my friend daniel vaughn who's the barbecue editor for texas monthly has looked into it in most of that in most cases they're actually serving lamb they call it mutton for the old timers but yeah. it's actually a fairly young young sheep but um, no, very, very rare to find lamb these days um, at, at barbecue joints, even, you know, in places where 50, 60 years ago, it was uh, a menu regular. Well, I know that they did that when my my dad was telling me about my grandpa feeding the 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 harvest crew at the mm-hmm. farm. They would do mostly pigs, but they did raise sheep, too, and they would throw a lamb on there. Um, you know, if you throw a good sized pig on there and, and a lamb, you've, you've probably got enough for 20 people, um, with, oh, with easily the, far the, more than that, probably. Yeah. For the side dishes, but they would roast a lamb once in a while. Um, and most of this really progression of barbecue happened after the civil war. Is that correct? Well, it, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't say, um, Totally. I mean, the barbecue goes way back in you know into the yeah. colonial era, and you know barbecues were just a huge feature of life in say colonial Virginia, uh, a part of the social life, and it sort of spread with uh, America as Americans headed first you know south and then, and then westward. Um, you know, so in, in by the 1820s, 1830s, large scale outdoor barbecues were just a huge way of celebrating the Fourth of July. You know, it's just sort of entrenched in in um, in, in sort of American social life, but you're right in that after civil the Civil War, that's when the um, changes that led to what we think of as barbecue today really started. It started in those years, and it evolved from that outdoor you know tradition where you're cooking these large public events with open pits dug in the ground and all the whole animals, you know, dozens of them, yep. to more 
you know, a commercial business and eventually restaurants and eventually all the regional styles and sauces and side dishes, you know, all that came, came later as uh, barbecue became a, you know, smaller scale and more of a commercial thing. Sure. Than it had been uh, sure. before the Civil War. We're going to take a break here. Uh, we'll be back with Robert Moss, author of Barbecue History of the American uh, Institution. And you're listening to Barbecue Nation on the Sun BGI Radio Networks. Thanks for being with us today. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's JT, and this is a special version of Barbecue Nation. It is brought to you in part by Painted Hills Natural Beef, beef you can be proud to serve your family and friends. That's Painted Hills Natural Beef. Welcome back to Barbecue Nation. I'm JT. Today, we're talking with Robert Moss, the author of a book you should read. Um, if you're into barbecue, it's the history of uh, an American institution. Uh, barbecue is the first word in that title, by the way, if you didn't figure that out. Also, if you'd like to contact us, it's info at thecowboycook.com. Info at thecowboycook.com. We also have, of course, Facebook uh, pages, uh, Twitter accounts. Um, we're on 17 social media platforms. We thank you all for uh, listening to the podcast version that those who can't catch it on the radio. So we really appreciate that. You can send me a message and I think we're going to do it for two more weeks. If you send me a message and request it, you can get a free subscription to national barbecue news. So I'm going to run that for two more weeks. We've had some um, really good response to that, but uh, I'm pretty sure I can probably give away five, maybe 10 more subscriptions to that from Kel Phelps and his crew down there. So let's get back and talk with Robert Moss here. Used a couple terms. Um, and one of them was out of a, a newspaper article from long ago. And it said, I think it was talking about uh, Sheriff Calloway said he put a fine cure on his barbecue. Do you remember that? I vaguely remember that one. And I got to admit, it's not a term that I've seen a lot yeah. uh, in descriptions. That's that's why I was asking, because I actually had never seen that. But the, whoever the writer was, the newspaper person had said he put a fine cure on it. The other thing that yeah, people, I can, go ahead, I can only think that they were thinking of like curing meat or like bacon or something like that. Yeah. Because it's certainly not a, a term that I've I've seen before. But again, some of these reporters hadn't seen a lot of barbecue. So no, no, new to it. They hadn't. <laughs> now, a couple of things that people uh, up north of um, what Georgian. George Carlin used to call the Manson Nixon line, which I always got a kick out of. Um, they might not know what hash is. Now I've been down there and I've had it and it's good. But um, in the cowboy world, we just call it the cook spot and it was kind of a stew mm -hmm. thing, but they're very definitive about their hash in certain areas. And some of it's a little different than others. But first of all, why don't you tell them what this hash is? Because it's not potatoes sure. fried in a frying pan, folks. No, there's no corned beef involved. There's, there's no <laughs> chunks of, of potatoes. It is a very, very specific thing. And it actually comes from uh, right in my part of the of the country, which is down here in, in South Carolina. Um, best I can tell, it originated sort of in the middle part of the Midlands, as they call it, middle part of, of South Carolina. and over into Georgia, but it really goes back to the old hog killing days and it's a hog killing stew. And, you know, back in those days, there's no refrigeration, of course. Um, sure. So you're killing a hog, you'd wait until the first cold day of 
of the you know, late fall, early winter. And, you know, they butcher the hog and use up all the big pieces, the hams and the shoulders and everything would go in the smokehouse. And, you know, they'd make sausage out of pieces. They'd render the fat to lard. And everything else that was left over went to this gigantic iron cast iron pot mm-hmm. over a fire. So the head, the organs, you know, all the, the pieces that you had nothing else to do with. And they, you know, maybe put some, uh, it might be some potatoes put in there, but uh, definitely onions and some spices sure. put in the, in the pot. And then just cook for hours and hours on end until it just, you know, breaks down into this really thick, it's almost like a gravy, really, yeah. um, stew. And, of course, they'd skim out any of the pieces that wouldn't render down. And you'd have this really flavorful stew. And, and at least in the old days when they used organ meats, it'd be very, you know, that, that livery taste, you know, that, that yeah. richness that you, you get from organ meats. Um, and, you know, that, of course, was something they would naturally do at a barbecue because the barbecue in the 19th century was a hog killing. You usually would kill the pig to put on the barbecue pit. So after you dressed the pig, you took everything else that was left over and threw it in the pot yep. and you had a hash. And uh, traditionally you would, uh, in here in the Carolinas at least, uh, you serve it over white rice and it's a really wonderful side dish. And over time it's you know, moved into the restaurants and now very few people will make it with hogs heads or anything like that. Right. It's rare to even find liver in it anymore. Usually it's just various cuts of pork and sometimes beef, um, but the the cooking technique is very much the same, and it's a it's a it's a South Carolina delicacy for sure. Well, I know that the guys up up north of you um, and headed towards my country, when uh, my family settled out here in Oregon in 1859, and so they have stories. In fact, I still have some recipes that were not written by the original guys, but written by my grandmother who got it from my great grandfather's wife, her mother-in-law. Okay. So the, whew, it goes back a ways, but they always had a pot on the fire cause they cooked with wood, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and there was always a stew type thing in there and they never, they didn't waste anything. Now they wouldn't throw, you know, like the hide, a hog's hide or something like that in there. They didn't do that because they cooked that over the spits or what have you. But like you're saying, they would do that, but they'd also put some beef in it. They kind of added to it as the week went on and kept cooking it, <laughs> you know. And, of course, now people would have a conniption fit if they thought you were doing that with their food. But these people all lived into their 90s and were very fit. So I might believe them. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> It sounds pretty good, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. So, um, and I'm not going to pronounce this right, Robert, so forgive me. Burgoo? Burgoo, yep, that's correct. Yeah. Now, isn't that kind of yeah. kind of like a hash? Or what is yeah, it? Yeah, it's 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 Kentucky's version of a barbecue stew. Um, you know, similar in a lot of ways to hash, it, and it, it goes back to a similar cooking technique. Um, you know, being in, you know, we're talking about mutton, uh, you open the, the mutton regions of Kentucky that they, they, they'll use mutton in their burgoo, which gives it a great, that rich, rich sort of lamb muttony flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but a very similar stew in, in a lot of ways. Uh, I don't think it ever has organ meats in it and it sort of came, came out of more the, uh, the, the big outdoor, you know, barbecue traditions, you know, up, up in Kentucky, but you can find it in a lot of places, um, all over Kentucky. Now it actually used to only be found up in the you know, or up around Owensboro in that area, mm-hmm. but a lot of restaurants in the past ten or twenty years have added burgoo. In fact, I think I was I've been very like you know fancy restaurants in Louisville to have uh, burgoo in the menu. Oh yeah, sort of has crossed over to becoming a Kentucky uh, fine dining specialty now. Absolutely. Well, I've also found that the hash 
or the Burgoo, whatever you want, whichever version you want to say or use. Uh, I'm not a big white rice fan, but I will eat what right white rice. I can't even say it properly. Um, if you've got something like the hash or the Burgoo over it, because um, uh, I know white rice is a staple around the world, but I just never cared for it. Not that I won't eat it. It just didn't ever taste like much to me, but you put something like that on it. I'll eat every, oh, for sure. every kernel that you put on my plate or my bowl. We're going to take a break here. We're <laughs> going to be back with Robert Moss here on barbecue nation. Talk about his re- revised book, barbecue history of the American institution. We'll be right back. If you're enjoying GT and his show, come check out my podcast, Around the House with Eric G, where we talk home improvement and design right here where you catch this podcast. Head to AroundTheHouseOnline.com. Welcome back to Barbecue Nation. I'm JT. We're talking with uh, Robert Moss today. Real quick, we'd like to thank the folks at Painted Hills Natural Beef. Beef the way nature intended. Check them out online at PaintedHillsNaturalBeef.com. And also Gunter Wilhelm Knives. If you want some really good chef's quality knives for your kitchen, if you take your cooking seriously, uh, check out Gunter Wilhelm. I've got some. I use them all the time, and they're great. Now let's get back to Robert Moss here. One of the things we talked about before you came on the show, Robert, was uh, with this new book, there's there's more in it um, about the culture of barbecue and you know, we've talked about this on the shows last time you were on, and I've talked about it with other authors about, you know, barbacoa and this and that and this and that. But really, a lot of the barbecue from America came from the African-Americans, and they developed the techniques and stuff. Um, and I found that really fascinating. Did did Were those trial and error recipes and i don't mean the exact recipes but the styles of cooking or was that something that was brought over with them when they were enslaved and brought over to the country or tell us about all that yeah it's it's really hard to know um and that's something something that is definitely new in the book uh i really spent a lot more time in the first chapter than i did in the original version trying to dig into the roots of it in the first book i sort of just glossed over very briefly saying you know we bar- we got the word from Native Americans, and you know, then we were cooking all right. in colonial Virginia. So I really tried to dig into that, and it's it's hard to tell exactly how barbecue came together because the the documentation is just so so slim. The best accounts we have are some of these uh, you know European conquistador explorer accounts where sure. they're writing about. Um, you know, the, the Native American cuisine, particular co- cooking that they find in, in the Caribbean and in Central America. So it's sort of hard to know, but we certainly the word barbecue and the, um, you know, it came to be applied to a specific technique that was not European in nature. And that's specifically cooking whole animals and sort of doing them sort of raised up above the fire on sort of a rack-like device, as opposed to, um, you know, roasting meat on a spit, which is the more traditional way and of course you know cooking meat over a fire is nothing unique you know every culture sure and that for time and memoriam so we know that uh we all but we we also know that you know we had a sort of intersection of three cultures you had the you know, native americans who were already here the europeans who came and then the the africans most of whom were brought you know against their will uh in, you know in, into slavery 
And somewhere out of that, the American barbecue tradition emerged. There doesn't seem to be a direct linkage to Africa the way that there is with things like gumbo, which is uh, very clearly an African dish, or even rice culture, um, uh-huh. you know, peanuts and, and boiled peanuts. All that has very much a, a direct, you know, connection back to Africa. But we do know that you know we had Africans uh, cooking in this, the uh, the colonial America. Uh, from very, very early on, and, and we're all usually the ones doing the work at the barbecue pit. So I think it's very likely to assume that a lot of the cooking techniques that developed in the 18th century, um, you know, it was African-American uh, who were you know, manning the pit and brushing the meat and doing all that. So certainly um, that tradition, you know, if, if you look at any old pictures or depictions of barbecues in the South, it's pretty clear who, who's doing the cooking. Um, you know, we had mentioned John Calloway, the the Right. White sheriff from Wilkes County. You know, he was the one who got in all the pictures, but he's standing in a nice white shirt. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I was able to do in, in the book, which the latest edition, uh, which I hadn't hadn't been able to turn up in the first edition, was the names of uh, the name of his head cook, the, the guy who was leading the pits, as well as several other contemporaries, uh, African-American men from that part of Georgia who were recognized as the great, you know, the leading barbecue cooks. Uh, in their in their areas, so certainly you know not only were African Americans ones who were doing the doing the, the hard work of digging the pits and, and all that, but they were really the cooks who were leading the the the, the whole crew and in, in many cases became famous themselves, uh, you know, in their counties or their their communities for being the the top barbecue cook in the region. Yeah, in fact, some of them. Um, well, I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, and we'll get back in a minute. But Henry Perry. Uh, who broke off, mm-hmm. went to Kansas City, did that. But he also seemed to be a, a mentor or a teacher to showing, you know, other people, uh, especially African-Americans, how to cook. And then they went off and opened up their own barbecue stands or what have you. But I And I just ca- kind of caught that. I thought that was very interesting because yeah, he seemed yeah, to be willing to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, mentorship is huge in the early days of, of barbecue. In fact, you know, in the book, I, I talk about a guy named Gus Ferguson, who was the great barbecue cook uh, in, uh, in in Augusta. And then he taught, uh, his his protege was a, a man named Pickens Wells. And Pickens Wells was actually the guy who cooked for President Taft in 1909. Mm-hmm. He came down. So you had this phenomenon going way back, and I'm sure it happened well back before the Civil War, where you'd have sort of your famous barbecue cook who would have a you know you know, teach somebody younger how to you know teach them the ropes and and then they would eventually become you know take over and you know and, and pass those techniques on down to the next generation. That happened all throughout the 19th century. And you, you mentioned Henry Perry. You know that's an example of uh, those techniques crossing over into the restaurant world because when Henry Perry arrived in Kansas City early 20th century, he opened a barbecue stand. Uh, he originally cooked his meat in a hole in the ground, just out back of his little stand <laughs> in downtown Kansas City, um, and then eventually enclosed the you know, restaurant and, and you know, enclosed pits, and and then uh, proceeded to teach a whole generation of others. And you could trace like Arthur Bryant's and uh, Gates's that they all can trace their their cooking legacy back to uh, back to Henry Perry. Yeah, isn't that isn't that fascinating though? If they do, yeah, I think it's absolutely wonderful. I love tracing. I, I like I love genealogy in, in general, and uh, sort of using that same kind of technique to trace the the barbecue genealogy from uh, one pitmaster back to another, back to another. Yeah, before them. 
well, one of the things you talked about <clears throat> um, in your book where um, the, the, the plantation owners and you take some references from some other um, some books that people wrote about being enslaved, you know, 30 mm -hmm. years of slave and stuff like that, but that they would have they would let the slaves have a barbecue, um, supplied them with stuff. Um, sometimes the slaves procured animals from other areas. I'll just put it that way because they had to, I'm sure. And um, but they'd give them a day off and that. Now, some people felt that that was just another way to keep them enslaved. Other people viewed it as a, a kindness, if you will. I'm not sure what I think about that because I'm not that familiar with it, but it seemed to me they had a, they could have a good time. Um, they usually didn't drink or anything. There was no alcohol normally in a lot of those, but um it seemed to be a big party just for them, but they could invite friends from other plantations and stuff. Yeah. And it's really complicated because just the, the history of the sort of enslaved life on, on plantations, you know, is, you know, there's a, there's a lot going on and it changed over time, particularly, you know, if you go from 1800 up until the, you know, the 1850s, right. You right. know, the eve of the civil war, um, there is, you know, ten, sectional tensions were growing. There's much more, fear among white Southerners about slave re rebellions or slave revolts uh, and that type of thing. And so, so it, it did change over time. Um, at one point, um, in, you know, enslaved African-Americans had a, had a more, more freedom, if not freedoms are on word, more ability to travel maybe to other, you know, neighboring plantations, visit sure. friends. And they got strict, they got sharply curtailed, um, you know, as the 19th century went on and, uh, you know, as as there's more and more, you know, sort of lockdown and more and more fear uh, of uh, among whites of, of revolts, and so um, certainly the, the the plantation barbecue is always sort of a mixed thing because yes, the slave workers uh, would host their own barbecues sometimes, uh, or, or allow to raise their own animals, or would might be be given a pig, would cook for a Christmas and celebration barbecues. Um, but also, you know, some of the uh, most notable slave revolts, uh, like Gabrielle's Rebellion uh, and Nat Turner's Rebellion, right. were actually planned at barbecues. And, um, you know, so you know, the enslaved workers would be using a barbecue, gathering together as sort of an excuse, but they were actually plotting revolt. And in Virginia in particular, that got really sharply curtailed after uh, the 1830s. Uh, and very much then barbecues became a, I mean, Everyone likes going to barbecue and eating it. It's hard to, to not like that. Right. But you're right. It was very complicated because it was in many ways a means of control or sort of like, oh, yeah, one day a year, we'll get, we'll throw a party for you. Um, and then, you know, in, in sort of the, the, the tumultuous days right before the Civil War, a lot of white Southerners would use that as like, look, we, we throw barbecue. You know, yeah. How benevolent. <laughs> yeah, um, right. But it's. Yeah, but it's pretty clear from <laughs> that uh, the, the slave workers have a very different opinion about well, that. Well, yeah, um, the next day it was back to the cotton fields and the stocks, right. you know. <laughs> so. And if you read the accounts of it, I mean, yes, I think, you know, if you read slave narratives, those were very enjoyable days. It was a celebration, but they're usually bookended by some very, very disturbing passages about the conditions uh, before and after that day. So it's it's pretty pretty clear that you know yeah barbecue is a great thing but it was uh it was uh you know it emits a, a very harsh harsh reality 
But what's really interesting is that immediately after emancipation, uh, barbecue became such a huge part of African-American social life. In fact, it became the center of the Emancipation Day uh, celebrations uh, that that took place all throughout uh, the South during the, the 19th century. And, you know, it's carried on today. So if, you, if people, are from, you know, if, we, if we're familiar with the Juneteenth right. holiday that originated in Texas, that was actually emancipation celebration in Texas and barbecue is was at the center of it uh, from very early on. So yeah, it, it's uh, it's it's a f- just a well, it's an entrenched facet of American life in general, but particularly in uh, in entrenched in, in African American life. We're going to take another break. Robert and I will be back, and I'm going to get Robert to stick around for the after hours because this is great stuff. Uh, you're listening to Barbecue Nation on the Sun BGI Radio Network. everybody it's jt and this is a special version of barbecue nation it is brought to you in part by painted hills natural beef beef you can be proud to serve your family and friends that's painted hills natural beef welcome back to barbecue nation uh i'm jt we're talking with robert moss today robert's updated version of barbecue history of the American institution. Robert also writes uh, for Southern living magazine, a uh, serious eat Savoie uh, early American life garden and gun uh, local palette and the Charleston city paper. You boy, you just, Killing pixels right and left there, Robert. Yeah, among others. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> spread it around a little bit. <laughs> uh, what are the it's term- not all barbecue either, though. I, you know, it's all, all sorts of mostly oh, food and drink. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Good things. Well, you wrote the history of bourbon, and that that was a, I I I got that book a long time ago. So that was yeah. Good. You can probably see a pattern in what I write about. <laughs> yeah, I get <laughs> things it. Things that are fun to research. Right? Yeah, you know, you got <laughs> you got to sample your work, man. That's um, right. Um, cold water barbecues. I thought that was real interesting back in the temperance days. Yeah, and and it really wasn't the Cary Nation type temperance days. It was before that because down in the yeah, south, before there, that. Yep. yeah, there was some real areas of the southern Bible Bible Belt, if you will, that they you know no fire water, no nothing. You wanted cold water, maybe lemonade if you really were a good boy. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the um, really the 1830s, and it, it coincided with the, the sort of the Second Great Awakening. So this, you know, religious fervor that swept through throughout throughout the nation. But sure. up until then, barbecues were really rough affairs. I mean, it was huge outdoor parties, uh, you know, thousands of people, lots of whiskey drinking going on. And if you look at accounts of them, they would have round after round of toasts. So. If you just count the number of toasts they're captured in these new <laughs> newspaper accounts, you can see there's a lot going on. I found some great articles about people, you know, getting in fights and stabbing each other with knives and blowing their arms off with a cannon and yeah. all these gruesome things because uh, it was it was pretty rowdy. Um, but that's when the you know, 1830s and, and then really building into the 1840s, the temperance movement, the first wave of it was coming along, uh, and it was really a you know, a way to civilize society in a, in a lot of ways. And one of the things they took aim at was the barbecue because the barbecue was the was basically a giant outdoor party. Sure. Very male, very rough. 
Um, and what you see is because toasting was such a natural part of barbecue, particularly the Fourth uh, of July. After everybody ate, there'd be round after round of toasts where everybody was toasting, you know, to America, to George Washington, to yeah. the Constitution, uh, and of course chugging back whiskey. Uh, at first, they the, the temperance folks tried to, you know, ban barbecues or at least shame people into not going. But then they realized, well, people like the barbecue part. Let's just get rid of the whiskey. So they started holding cold water barbecues, uh, and they were just like any other barbecue. You'd have the same, you know, big old pits and animals cooked on it. And for Fourth of July, there'd be the speeches and the, you know, the patriotic songs, and there'd be toasts. But they, all they would have would be spring water. Uh, in fact, the accounts really say they were cold water toasts. So you would still toast George Washington and the flag and the Constitution, but uh, it would just be pure, you know, pure unalcoholic uh, water in the in the cups. That sounds boring as hell. Yeah, it doesn't sound nearly as much fun to me, but, you know, they, they, they should get barbecue. That, that's got to be cool. <laughs> this coming, folks, from the guy who wrote the history of bourbon and how bourbon got its name. You, you remember that now. Um, oh, yeah. The other thing we talked about, too, off the air, um, bring your own bucket to the barbecue. Mm -hmm. I loved that because I actually know people that they didn't bring their own bucket, but they brought their own bloody Tupperware to some of our parties <laughs> and uh, never brought anything in it. It was all to go home with, you know, later on. But uh, I, I thought that was a real, real characterization of being, you know, very rural, very down home, very uh, indigenous to your area. And just Robert, bring your own bucket now, Sunday. You know that. So. Yep. Yep. And that was in the early days of commercial barbecue when these barbecue guys would set up little barbecue stands right. on like 4th of July and Labor Day. And of course, they didn't have uh, styrofoam takeout containers and all that. So it, it's particularly a, a thing in, in, around, in and around Columbia, South Carolina. But they would advertise in the newspaper, we're having bucket cube, bring your own bucket. <laughs> so I can only assume that you would just come and buy it by the pound and put it in a big old bucket and, and carry it home. They put the rice on the bottom if they were if uh, I would assume if you're getting bucket hash they they might yeah. do that I don't know but at this time you could also you know in in, in America back you know, around the turn of the century late 19th century you could uh, a lot of places would sell beer by the bucket right um, so you would go you know bring your bucket and fill it full of beer so I, I think a bucket of beer and a bucket of barbecue would be a pretty good combination for like say labor day or something like that man all you got to do is find a shady tree and sit under it's got That's a little, right. little grass and maybe a little breeze blowing you're good for the afternoon there you know there you go. really really what was the most surprising thing you found and i mean this is the revised edition of this book and but was there one thing in particular that struck you when you were doing the extra research and stuff i mean i i am assuming having talked to you a few times that you never really stopped doing the research. You just kept going on with your normal activities and you would find more stuff. But was there one thing in particular that you went, wow, I didn't even dream about that. Hmm. I'm trying to think. Um, yeah. You're, and you're right. I certainly kept, kept right on researching and right on researching. Um, you know, one of the things that surprised me was more looking forward. I had not anticipated with the first book that barbecue would explode the, or continue to, to boom the way it has sure. uh, in the last last uh, last 10 years. So that really surprised me. Of course, I lived alongside of that, of the rise of craft barbecue and whole, whole hog barbecue yeah. and all that. Um, you know, one of the things that did not make it into the book from my research that um, did, I found that really did surprise me was the history of barbecue ribs. Um, 
And actually, a little bit of, of it got into the book. Uh, I talk about a guy named John Mills. Right. In, Memphis, uh, yeah. In Memphis, who was uh, well before Charlie Virgos' Virgo's rendezvous, was a very famous rib cook and, in fact, was shipping ribs by airmail before World War II, so back in the 30s. So that was a pretty surprising thing. And But also was just sort of – I didn't realize um, in, in how ribs sort of developed and, and rib shacks. And that was something that no one ate. You never ate barbecue ribs in the 19th century because – um, you know, you, you either ate at a barbecue, you ate the whole animal, right? Right. <laughs> just the ribs would be in it, but you wouldn't get a slab of ribs. That really came about with meat packing in the early 20th century. Um, and so that's what I was surprised is how um, how quickly ribs took off in the 1920s, 1930s, all over the country, particularly in the Midwest. If you think about pork areas, uh, Babe Ruth, for instance, was a huge fan of barbecue ribs, and right. I've all these great stories of him. Uh, Picking, getting takeout ribs from his favorite rib joint and uh, eating them on the train with all his Yankee uh, buddies and drink, you know, drinking beer after the games on the way back to New York or where, wherever they had, were headed. So the whole story of ribs is just one I hadn't really thought about that much, uh, but just, just determined that ribs sort of just blossomed in the early 20th century as this American thing. They used to be the cheapest cut of meat you could find. Um, in fact, the stock houses in, in Cincinnati back in the 19th century they couldn't sell them. They couldn't pack them and sell the ribs. They wouldn't fit in the barrels. And they had more than it. They gave them away to the boarding house owners to cook. And then once they couldn't give away, they had actually dump into the Ohio River by the wagon load because they had so many ribs. They literally could not give them away. Wow. And of course, now ribs cost a arm and a leg. The most expensive. Yeah. Of, of pork there. And Robert, thanks for being with us. And I look forward to talking to you here on After Hours in just a couple minutes. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much. Appreciate you having me on. No problem. We'll see you next week with another edition of Barbecue Nation. Take care, everybody. Barbecue Nation is produced by JTSD LLC Productions in association with Envision Networks and Salem Media Group. All rights reserved.